Hey, this is Jordan Sutton, pastor at Clearpath Church. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. We appreciate you listening. A little about our community. We love to come together. We love to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, we're a community trying to be led by the Spirit, just walking through Scripture together, walking through life together. If this message is an encouragement to you, bring some hope to your life at the end of the sermon. There'll be a little bit of information about how you can get in touch with us. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining. God, I pray, um, just as the Apostle Paul prayed, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you, the hope to which we are called. We might know the riches you have for us, Lord. But I pray, God, that as you're leading us like a shepherd leads us to good pastures, that we would recognize that you are the leader and the good pastures, Lord. That we would have delight in you, Lord. Um, that we would not get caught up on trying to get you to figure every problem that is our life, but that we would remind, be reminded just to come and, and, and drink from the river whose streams make glad the city of our God. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that there would be gladness this morning, that there would be, that there would be joy, God, that there would be um, your mercy and grace, but that there would be... Um, but that we would find delight in you. So Lord, just pray that you would restore that this morning. And if you if you feel like you've lost um, just delight in him, I just like, raise your hand real quick. I want to just pray for you real quick. Just as an acknowledgement, like if you've lost delight in him, anybody that I could pray that for. Okay, there's a few people. Lord, I just pray right now for those that um, that are in the space, Lord, that you've, you have lost delight. I pray that you would restore, God. You would restore, Lord. God, we thank you for how you lead, but we pray this morning there would be rivers of gladness and joy. So, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your son. pray that you would fill us um, with just ears to hear your word this morning. God, let anything that comes from my mouth that's not of you fall to the ground, Lord. But everything that is, let it penetrate our hearts and move and shape us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. How many of you are thankful for this morning? Worship is awesome. Let's give these guys a hand. Years ago, I had a pastor. I had two competing points of wisdom from different pastors who had both pastored churches for 50 years. One of them said to me, um, you know, you, can, you should make things simple and easy so that everyone can get it and receive it. And one of them said to me, you need to teach in a way that draws people higher into him. And I would say that at times the Lord has done want both of those things. Um, but, but I've always had a leaning and a belief towards that, that God wants to draw us, draw us higher and that we have the capability of, of receiving and knowing and walking in deeper wisdom about who he is. And so I'm asking you this morning to, to come up higher with me, to think, to think in a new way. And I, I want to teach on sin, and um, I will uh, give some contacts this morning. I think that if I, if I would think over my lifetime, which isn't the longest lifetime that's ever, you know, that's been around, even in this room, I think that the biggest shift in thought in the church that has possibly happened in my lifetime is the way that we talk about sin. Um, there's a number of things that, are, that have quite significantly shifted, even in my, you know, almost 37 years of living. 
but I think that this is, this is one that's shifted quite a lot. By show of hands, how many of you grew up in a church that really, that really prioritized, or in a church setting that really prioritized the sinfulness of man? Like that was like a, a preeminent conversation. Um, I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, and I think that over these last few decades, and I think really in a longer, in a much longer framework, I don't have time to unpack all the history of this, I think that God is wanting to address and deal with the way we talk about sin so that it can have its place of priority and be talked about in a way that's actually beneficial and profitable. But, but Jesus, like differently than us, Jesus tends to address problems in history, in the church, in our life, in our communities, down to the very small ways, in ways that are much slower than we would like to do them. You know, if I, if it was my thinking and Eve sends in the garden, I'm like, you know what? We will create a new Eve and we will start over and we will solve this problem right now. Um, that's not the way God thinks though. And, and so he, the way that he worked in totality of working through man's problem is by for thousands of years coming into covenant with a man and then a family, and then a clan, and a tribe, and a people, and bringing about a Savior, like through this story of Scripture, and prophetic texts, and all these different things, it, and He revealed Jesus. And so, He he works in ways that, um, He works in ways that are slower. But let me just start by saying this. This should be fairly obvious, but I do believe that God does really care that we live a life that exemplifies righteousness and goodness and does not want us to live a life of sin. Can we agree on that? Like, I think that's actually important, and I think it's actually a big deal. I'm going to teach to you today from Ezekiel 18, and the reason I'm teaching from Ezekiel 18 is because when I was, I was reading it earlier this year, and God began in this time to reframe or, or giving me a broader picture of my understanding of sinfulness. Um, and here's the deal. Like, I hope to get somewhere on this subject today, but I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I'll have to teach on this again. Um, but before I go into the Ezekiel text, I need to give you kind of a, my journey with this topic over the last number of years. Um, there was a, you, you guys have heard me mention this, but there was, a, there was a teaching or a thinking that came out over the last five or ten years. Um, and the teaching was that, and that I've addressed it with some level of frustration here, even in recent years, is that, that you do not need a consciousness of your sin to come away from sin, to repent, but you need a consciousness of God. And like... I don't think that that's helpful. So here's a little spoiler alert, is that I believe that we need consciousness of God and His goodness and wonder and righteousness mostly, but I also think we need an awareness of sin that's in our life. So that's my spoiler. You know, I'm going to mention that briefly, but let me read to you 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, which is not primary text, but it will at least like get us on the journey. It says, for even if I made you sorry, this is Paul speaking he, in the backdrop of this text. He's going, you know, he's all over the place as he always is, but, but he's been addressing with this church issues of sin over different letters. Um, some actually think that there's, a, we, there, there's actually a third letter to the Corinthians that doesn't get included in the canon, but Paul has a long relationship with the, with the church of Corinth. And so he says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. It reminds me of this moment I had with my, with my son when he said, Dad, you're making me feel bad the way you're talking about what I did. And I said, Son, I want you to feel bad in this moment. <laughs> For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. That's, that's such a great, that's exactly, <laughs> that's so on point. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. That the implication here is that there is a type of sorrow that we can have over our th bad stuff that's not godly, but that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. 
For godly sorrow produces, quote, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindignation. That is a ton of stuff. That <laughs> This godly desire. But, but just like it does a lot in us. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I, I don't have time to back up and unpack all of that. But I want to say a couple of things. So first of all, it is di- this text is directly contradictory to the notion that we only need awareness of God's goodness to come to re- true repentance. It actually says that we that godly sorrow produces repentance. Everyone say amen to that. It is true that his kindness leads us to repentance, but also true um, but also he wants us to be appropriately like this is the phrase here, appropriately sorrowful for our sin. Okay, so here is what happens in our, um, when we have sin, is that it produces a type of tension in us when we do things that we know are wrong. Like how many of you have ever done something wrong and immediately you feel bad? Like your, your mind, like the, the neurological framework of the way that God created you is designed in such a way that when you violate things that are contrary to the fundamental moral value in which you're holding, that you're, you, don't, you respond to that and you, you feel tension. And so I've, I've talked about this before, but one of my favorite people in the, my journey of re-understanding the way to understand to think about sin, there's a psychologist that came out of Harvard named Susan David, and she talked about um, she talked about this idea of em- of our emotions should not be drivers to us; they should be data. And so she she gave an example of let's say that you feel like you're being a bad father, you're not being a good dad, and you're feeling really down on yourself, and you feel tension. There's a tension inside of you. If you, if rather than just you know letting that emotional feeling drive you straight to eating ten Oreos out of the bag, you stop and you examine that emotion and say, "Well, why do I feel that?" What you like, there are many, many possible things that you could find out. But what you might find out is, a, you're being too hard on yourself. That's a possible outcome. You're being unrealistically hard on yourself. But, but b, you might find out you're violating a value that God has put in you. Does this, like, if I am, if I'm being a father in a way that's not good, and, and like, I feel tension in my heart about that, I may find when I examine that emotion that, like, I'm at, there's actually something that's God's put in me that's more good, that's deep in here, and I'm violating that boundary. And I feel tension because I violated something. Does this make sense? There are many other outcomes, but I'm giving you two simple outcomes. And I think that over the last 20 years, most of what the church tries to do with people in the midst of tension is to offer comfort. And the comfort we offer is quick validation and quick resolve of the tension. Like we try to offer quick validation and quick resolve. And when pe- what do I mean by that? We want people to resolve feeling bad. We want people to get over the bad feelings in their heart. And Jesus doesn't want to just, Jesus wants to make us whole, not just merely bring some false resolve in our heart. He wants to make us whole. He doesn't just want you to get what psychologically happens when you find any sort of resolve in your, in your life, whether it's a resolve of a goal that you set or resolve of alleviating yourself of a type of burden that you're feeling, what happens is that endorphins are released in our body and we feel better. It's why often when people get some sort of new way of looking at their brokenness, 
that doesn't resolve it, they feel better for a while because there's endorphins. There's all this stuff released in the body that says, oh, you're better. And we do not, as a church, we do not want to give you that. We want to let God change you. I don't want to preempt the deep and final resolve of God in people's life. I want to bring people into wholeness in Christ. Does this make sense? So I want to double and click and expand our view (laughs) and response of sin through Ezekiel 18. Um, But I need a backstory. I need to give you a backstory on Ezekiel. Um, So I... uh, there are three kings that succeeded each other. Ezekiel came into his prophetic ministry under the leadership of Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. And they are father and son. He's like, not going to name my son my same name, but we're going to get it as close as possible. And, and so the preceding Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim is Josiah. Josiah was actually my second option uh, Andrea wasn't initially excited about Judah. She, she ended up loving that name. But I was like, if we can't get Judah, we get Josiah. I like Josiah because Josiah was this righteous king who he tore down high places. He brought back the, the scriptures. He brought the nation back to righteousness. And he by maybe the greatest king in Israel's history besides David. And he's just like, just incredible king. And after him, there are Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim are like, this was like the last season of fruitfulness in Israel under Josiah. And then these guys, these kings were presiding at a time when the nation was conquered and they were drawn into exile. Everybody, everybody's still processing with me. And so Ezekiel, God raised up Ezekiel during a time where righteousness was falling, where the nation was initially conquered under Jehoiakim and then essentially brought into captivity and exile away from Jerusalem under Jehoiakim. Does the history make sense? I'm trying to fly. And, and, but here's what God tells Ezekiel, and I love this. He says, no one's going to listen to you. I want you to say a bunch of stuff. It's actually right here. Ezekiel 2.7. <laughs> you shall speak my words to them. Whether they hear or not, they refuse for they are rebellious. And like, he's basically saying like, and it's actually ultimately true. No one's going to listen to you. Obviously, it's not exactly that explicit, but that's, that's pretty much what happens. Get ready, dude. People might not listen to you. So, um, This is a key, though. This is a prophet who is unmoved by the acceptance from his people. And so why? Why would God raise somebody up to speak to a people who won't listen to him? Like, what's the purpose of that? Um, Let me say that I I believe that there's two really simple reasons. That he's going to use Ezekiel's relationship with Israel and to speak to later generations of Israelites about what it means to not respond in repentance. And he's also going to use the relationship that Ezekiel has with Israel to speak to you and me about what it means to either listen to God or not listen to God. Everybody on board? So here's what happens. Keep going and we're going to get to our text. While Israel is getting they're butt beat. They're getting destroyed. The city is getting destroyed. They're getting dragged away by a foreign empire away from their city. Like all of this happens. What do you think is the kind of message that God gives Ezekiel to, to speak about? Like you'd think that a people getting destroyed, getting drawn away, that God's message would be to them, I got you, I'm going to comfort you. How many of you know God's a comforter? 100% he's a comforter. You'd think that would be the message. Maybe you would think that the preeminent message would be, man, those, those bad kings, they've taken you away. But he doesn't tell them to point the finger at Babylon. The thing that God does through most of Ezekiel 
He does it later dress the kings of the world. But the thing that God does through most of Ezekiel's ministry in this book is address Israel for their sin and their disobedience and how they've gotten away from God. Think about this. What we often do is that we blame our shortcomings and our sufferings always on what we have no control of. We want comfort. We don't want correction. We want for there to be somebody to blame. We don't want to look inwardly. It's just like the nature of people. Listen, I've been pastor now for 13 years. One thing I've learned is we all are really good at coming up with different creative ways to not be responsible for our problems. We're excellent at it, honestly. And so this relationship between this prophet and this nation is, it's like, this is how people do things. (laughs) They do things this way. And God is, he wants to comfort them ultimately, but what he wants is for them to be brought into a type of alignment that will allow his goodness to flow over their lives. And so his ministry isn't the ministry of validation. It isn't the ministry of removing the tension. It's the ministry of addressing the problem at the root of the source, which is they aren't following God. Does this make sense? Does this feel like contradictory to what we try to do in our lives? It does to me. I feel like we look for quick resolve. So I'm going to read to you this really long text. I'm, I'm, I just want you to just hear it. I'll, I'll read it off the screen so you, you can flow with me on this. It says, As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he does not oppress has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing. If he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he has walked in my statutes and keep my judgments faithfully, he is just, he surely shall live, says the Lord. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does not, and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife. If he has oppressed the poor and needy and robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, by, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination. If he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? Shall he shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he will surely die, and his blood shall be upon him. If, however, he begets a son who, has, who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has, eaten, who has not eaten on the mountains. Let me pause and say this. In a, on that, this, in a different translation, says, look to idols. So when mountains, um, I'll go back to that. Verse 13, yeah. This one, it says, when it says eaten on mountains, it's talking about looking to idols or going up to the mountains, the high places. Um, Nor lifted his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. Who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquities of his father. He shall surely live. But as for his father, because he is cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother with violence, and did not do what is good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them? He shall surely live. 
The soul who wins shall die. Soul who sins, not the soul who wins. Like that's translation that is. The son, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and keeps my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he surely will live, and he shall not die. None of his transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he shall turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that all the wicked man has done, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. Okay, that was a really long, really long passage, but I'm, I'm going to mention some elements of this. Um, I want to, um, I want to highlight something that I believe the Holy Spirit showed me that will take us to a deeper level of responsibility, took me to a deeper level of responsibility around my life and sin. Every sin in this text, every sin in this context, in, in this text, is contextualized in how it violates our love for God or how it violates our love for another. I want you to look at the sins mentioned. I, I wrote them down so we didn't have to read that whole thing again. A couple times it says looking to idols. What is Scripture? It invites us to, to look to God where our help comes from. But then the others are, you've defiled your neighbor's wife. You've oppressed the poor and needy. You've exacted usury against the poor. You know what that means? It means that the poor doesn't have the ability to pay it back, and you've made him pay back every penny. It says you've robbed others with violence. The sins that are listed here are sins that are committed against another person. Are you, are you processing this with me? For a really long time, the way the church has understood sin is based on how it makes me impure, not how it violates love. Our focal point around our sin is how it makes us worse or better off. We have made sin and the conversation of sin primarily a self-centered one. And we've made the pursuit of purity primarily a self-centered one. We've made our sin and the removal of it about a realization of our potential, not about how we love God or others better. The focus of violence, the reason why Jesus in the Old Testament rebukes violence is not just because your anger, in your anger you've, you're made impure, it's because it harms other people. Because it prevents you from loving your neighbor. The focus of sexual sin here is not on how I've become impure, but how I've defiled my neighbor's wife. The focus here on oppression of the needy is not how, I, not how I've become greedy and that's made me worse, but how I've robbed from people in my greed. I'll tell you this, when we participate in something like pornography, which is just an easy layup, I'm sorry, you know, everyone, it's an easy layup to talk about. But when we participate in something like pornography, it's not just that we are becoming impure, that's a super self-centered view. It's that we are economically contributing with every click to the oppression and the subjugation of people on that screen and everyone watching that screen. 
Your sin is not done in a vacuum. You aren't just sinning against yourself. You're sinning against, against everyone around you. And you're sinning against God himself. And this is true of all cycles of sin. That when we sin, when we participate in a life of sin, it's not done in a vacuum. It violates people. And the moral compass right now in the world, and sometimes in the church, is that do what you want as long as it doesn't affect others. Do, do what you want as long as it doesn't. And I'm here to tell you there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing there's no tolerating of unrighteousness that will not affect others. Everything that you participate with, whether in goodness or whether in brokenness, will affect everyone around you. Are you with me? And the reason, the, the reason we have emphasized this is there's been incredible moves of God in our country, but when we go back to the holiness of, like the purity revivals that happened in the late 18th century, which spawned like the Pentecostal movements ultimately spawned like the Methodist movement. There was, there's like all these different Baptists, all these different movements that were spawned out of like a holiness return. And I'm a big believer in holiness. Like I'm not saying that, but the point of our holiness is not that you get to be a little bit better. It's that you get to express love and not lead people away from God. I want you to see this in the words of Jesus. Look at, look at the words of Jesus. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were, who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition from the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Man. He answered them and said, Why do you transgress the commandment because of God, of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift from God, then he did not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw from me from their laugh. Then these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship and teaching as doctrines of men. Then he had called the multitude to himself and said to them, Hear and understand, they're concerned about washing of hands. He said, It is not what goes into a mouth, a mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of him that defiles a man. It is not what comes into you that defiles you. It is what comes out of you. I want you to see this. When violence comes out of a man upon another man, it defiles the man. When sexual morality flows out of me onto somebody else, it defiles me. It's not just what you carry in your heart, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. When you let sin flow through you and you let your sin affect the people around you, you defile yourself. The, the text here, God is, he's, hold on one second. Okay. God is looking for repentance, but not just a self-centered focus on our sin. It isn't just about our purity. It is about the way that we violate the world's relationship with God, our family, our community, and the world around us gets a greater chance to having a skewed view of God and love when we excuse the sin remaining in us. You aren't just repenting for God to change you. You're repenting because God's love needs to be more well expressed to others. I want you to think about this. It's not just what comes in a man. It's not, it's not just that Babylon came and captured Israel. It's not just that something bad happened to them. It's what came out of them that defiled them. My opinion is that we need a shift 
in the way that we look at sin. That's not a self-centered focus. So I'm going to read to you this a shorter portion of this text. And I want to double-click again. I know we're long, but I'm going to do it. If, however, he begets a son who sees all sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains or nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone nor withheld a pledge nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, catch this, and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and did not receive usury, or increase, but has executed my judgments and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. And so this text is demonstrating, this text is demonstrating righteousness, the, which is the opposite of just letting sin abound. And what Ezekiel, what Ezekiel does, speaks to is that he's looking for a man of righteousness in two dynamics. The first element is that there's a part of righteousness in a man in the unrighteousness the man has chosen not to do. Does this make sense? When you do not oppress, when you do not use violence, when you do not defile, there is a part of righteousness in what we choose not to do. But a part of righteousness is the active call of love that we are meant to walk in and enter into. There are things that we say no to and things that we say yes to. And righteousness is not just an avoidance of the bad. It's a participation of the good and the holy that God has given us to walk in, namely love. And so the first, like, like in verses 14 through 16, there are a lot of no's. Do not def- the one who has not defiled his neighbor's wife, the one who has not oppressed, the one who has not robbed, who has not withheld. But in verses 16, it says the yeses are those who have given to the hungry, the one who covers the naked with clothing, the one who not, not only ex- doesn't exact usury, but forgives the loan. Are you with me? And so repenting toward righteousness and love isn't just about letting go of the no's. It's about embracing the yeses of God's goodness and righteousness in our life. Like we cannot just go, okay, I'm not going to do all the bad things. Like God invites us into a life of deep and expressed love. Okay, so this, this will make it make sense to you. And I appreciate you guys lingering with me. This is why I'm going to read the great commandment to you. Jesus says, the one of the lawyer asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You've maybe never seen it like this, but this is why Jesus is able to say on all the law and all the prophets hang, two, hang these two commandments, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. All this sin that Ezekiel is rebuking them for is that they have not loved their neighbor. They've committed sexual violence. They've robbed. They've oppressed. They've exacted usury. They've they've done all these things. And he's not saying to them, you need to get pure so that you're more pure. He's saying to them, you need to repent because you're demonstrating hate, not love. And Jesus is from this trajectory able to say that all the law and prophets hang on these two things, that you love love God and you love your neighbor. So every sin in your life that has abounded and remained that you think is about you is actually about you loving God and loving your neighbor. Every time that you felt like repentance was just about being a little better version of yourself, it's actually about you being able to come more humble and to love him and love others better. 
Every time that we commit something that we think just affects us, it's actually affecting everyone around us. And Ezekiel and Jesus, is, who is ratifying this, is saying all of these commandments, all of these prophetic words, hang on this one thing that you could love the Lord your God with all your heart and you could love your neighbor as yourself. We need a definition of sin that is not based on our self-centered, pious, climbing the ladder, be more righteous version of understanding, and one is about becoming love. One is about embodying the mercy of Jesus. And when you think about your sin, you need an awareness and a consciousness in your soul that it's affecting everyone around you. The responsibility is not just about you being a little better version. It is about how it affects my kids. It is about how it affects my community. It is about how it affects the world around me. And the Lord has shown me multiple times how my sin, without me knowing it, is indirectly affecting my kids. Is this okay? I know know this is like, is not like the easiest message to hear. But I'm telling you that God does not want to diminish, he does not want to diminish the view that sin matters. He's actually wanting to expand and to alter how we view it. For decades, we've repented of sin because of it, how it made us a little better. And I believe Jesus is saying today that he's calling us by his kindness, by his goodness, back to love, not just so that we can be better versions of ourselves, but so that we can love people better. Amen? So Jesus does three key things for us, and I really am actually getting there now. Jesus does three key things for us. These will be short to help us live free from a life of sin. First of all, he demonstrates what love looks like. How many of you know Jesus is the greatest demonstrator of what love looks like? He taught it. He embodied it. He went to the cross. He laid down his life for another. He demonstrates it. That's number one thing of the gospel is that Jesus come and and demonstrates love and the kingdom of God. The number two thing is that he offers us what is called imputed righteousness. How many of you ever heard this term? I know this is like going back to the grounds, but like this, what this means, this whole scripture is talking about how because of the sins of their father and their own sins, that they will have all this bad stuff happen to us. And what imputed righteousness means is that because of the blood of Jesus, there is a cancellation of the debt that's caused by you or anybody before you. And that it is not warranted to you to receive the punishment of God because the blood of Jesus, he has taken upon himself that punishment. Amen? I mean... Lord, have mercy if I had to stand before that, what I am owed. And I'm thankful that Jesus' blood covers my righteousness in that I have not only been demonstrated what love looks like, that that there is an imputed righteousness that's over my soul, that I will not have to receive all that I am owed from my sin. Amen? He also, in a third category, offers us an imparted righteousness, which is not, in some circles, always talked about. This means that we are not only demonstrated love, we're not only forgiven for our lack of love in sin, we also have been empowered to live a righteous, loving, godly life in Him. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He... For he made him who knew no sin to be for us sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You aren't just forgiven. You have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. You have been imparted that all the things which Ezekiel addresses and corrects, which all the other scriptures that talk about sin, man incapable of repenting truly, God has imparted for us a grace by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus to be able to walk out in an increasing way the love of God free from sin. Does this make sense? This is the gospel, folks that he's demonstrated a love, that he's forgiven us, and that he has imparted in us a power to be able to do it. But here's my, 
encouragement to you is that you are still becoming. You are still becoming. And while you're becoming, God will continually over your life highlight to you areas of imperfection that he calls for you to repent. Not because you aren't going to, you know, go to heaven or that you're going to go away from his grace. None of that. Because he's trying to perfect you in love. He's trying to bring you into the fullness of his righteousness as been as made provided for us on the cross. And we are hiding from the repentance because we're scared. We want resolve. Somebody's told us that doesn't matter. I don't know what the reasons are, but God wants for us to feel a bit of godly sorrow, not because he wants us to be under his thumb, but because he wants us to be perfected in righteousness and love. And all the law hang on these two things. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart. We love our neighbor as ourselves. If you have sin, and all of us do to some degree have sin in your life, it is not just about your purity. It is about his love flowing through you. Our repentance is not just a turning from sin. It's a turning to love. And here's the deal. Every time we sin... Every time we defile others, the Bible actually says this and science supports it. I've read the I don't have time to go into science today. But every time we defile others in the violation of our consciousness, it becomes easier and easier and easier to defile others. Every time you let the defilement come out of you to another person, as Jesus says, it's not what comes into you, but what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Every time you let that defilement flow, it is affecting others, and you become more defiled in the process, and your consciousness becomes more and more seared. It's scientifically supported. The Bible says it, the, and the science supports it. Like our brains alter our moral like understanding of what is okay. And the Lord is, his grace is abounding. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And he says, come to me and I will make you right. Come to me. I will make you clean and I will make you full of love and righteousness and goodness. And from you will not flow defilement, will flow blessing. So we were praying Friday night and we're praying through Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is this Messiah text. And it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to, to proclaim good news to the poor, to set captives free, and all this kind of thing. And, and so we're, I was asking people to pray these prayers. And as we were praying out of Isaiah 61, I saw a picture in my mind. I was like, I, was like, I don't want to call it a vision, but close to a vision. And the way I can explain it is, I shared this Friday night, but the way I can explain it is Andrew and I have a shower that we should have a shower in our home, but we have, in our shower, the drain is like the way they set it, it wouldn't allow us to, to pull it out and clean it. And so for years, I tried to like pull this thing out and I couldn't. And finally, it came out and our shower wasn't draining. And when I finally got this thing out, there was all this calcification of the shower drain. And it was down to like this tiny hole that could drain like over like, you know, and it's got, you know, I mean, water doesn't look good after you shower. Let's just be honest. And it just, you, you know, you take a shower and like your feet, you're just sitting in like the, you know, it's just not good. And, and so we finally got this thing out and I just took a screwdriver and I started hammering on all this calcification and I just pulled it out and then the thing drained well. And as we began to pray Isaiah 61, which says all these wonderful things that Jesus embodies, I saw, like as it were, the words going through people's heart and blowing out calcification. That it was actually removing all the impurities. And I realized that in the same way that sin, as it flows out of us and defiles another, that as righteousness and love and goodness flows out of us, it cleans our hearts like as we began to bless, as we began to pray, as we began to love, as we began to clothe the naked, as we began to cover brokenness, as we began to forgive debts, as we began to feed the hungry, that, it, that Isaiah 61, that the word of God just begins to clean out every part of us. That in a greater way than sin defiles as it comes out, as righteousness comes out, it purifies.
Can you show this picture? Eden and I went on a trip to Big Ben, and we stood, this is the Rio Grande. We stood next to the Rio Grande, and over the last hundred years, we've created reservoirs that have drawn the water away from its flowing source. The Rio Grande a hundred years ago was a powerful big river. And over time, it shaped these, the river has shaped these, these, um, these canyons and these, like it, it cuts away at the sediment, at the dirt, and all of these things. And I looked at this, I sent, took this picture and I sent it to my family and I said, it is the river that shapes the rock. It's not the rock that shapes the river. It's the river that shapes the rock. And I realized as I was looking at this that the love of God can flow through us and form us. Or the sin can flow through us and form us. And you are formed you are formed by what flows through you. You are formed by what flows through you. Does this make sense? You're formed by what flows through you. The more I participate with the river, with the flow of sin, even my neurological framework begins to adapt. But how much greater when I let the love of God flow through me will I be changed? Will I be like this beautiful rock shaped by the river? I just feel like for a moment I want to let the Lord search our hearts. And I just want the Holy Spirit, I can't do the work. I want the Holy Spirit just to come and minister His love to us. The beautiful thing, just as your eyes are closed, the beautiful thing about doing what Ezekiel did with sin instead of pointing to Babylon or pointing to something external is that when you make it an interior thing, and you look at yourself, I'm able to hand that to the Lord and receive His grace. I feel like, I want to let the Lord search us for a minute. I feel like that the Lord, there's, there's different categories of people. I feel like there are people in this room that are blaming everything. They're blaming everything else. And God wants to say, it's you I, I want to love. It's you I want to change. You can find a hundred external reasons. Ninety-nine of them might be valid. But their validity won't save you. It's Jesus who will make you whole. If you're blaming and you're stuck... The Lord says, receive my love now. Let my love flow through you. Don't curse, bless. Don't rob, give. Ah, this, I know this is a step of faith. I don't want to just push this on everybody. But if you feel a little bit stuck and blaming and trying to figure it out out here, just, just stand. There's no shame. If you feel stuck, like you're trying to figure out why is my life bad, I want you to stand. You're blaming others. You're blaming parents. You're blaming your background. I think the message to those of you standing is that God loves you. And that there's actually some validity to your frustration and to, to the things that have happened to you. But solving those won't solve you. And so, Lord, I just pray right now that you your love would come right now. Your love would come. Your love would come. Mercy, come right now in Jesus' name. Mercy, come right now. God, I thank you for humility. 
Okay, I want you to just keep standing and let the Lord work on you. Second, second group of people. The Lord wants to reframe your understanding of sin away from you being more pure to you being able to love better. You know, you know that, that there, are, there are compromises in your life that have violated your loving of God and your loving of others. I want you to stand right now. You know there are compromises in your life that have violated your love of God and your love for others. Just stand. Same message for you. You can't figure it out. His love is what restores. His love is what restores. So I just want both these groups right now, open our hands, and I just want us to receive the love of God, to receive the love of God. God, I pray that there would be a spirit of repentance that would wash over every person, that we would turn not just away from the bad but towards love. We would turn not just away from the bad, but towards love. That righteousness would float like a river. That justice like a waterfall over every person in this place. And God, I pray over every violation that has been done to this group of people. All the harms that can't be named. I pray that you would cover them, God. That your love would come in and that you would be the counselor that you are. But that you would let them know that figuring out that problem isn't the solution. That Jesus is the solution. And so, Lord, right now, I just pray grace like, like a river. Just, just stand, like, in it for a second, like, with faith. God, grace like a river right now. Lord, let your love flow. Flow, flow, flow right now. And if, and if you feel compelled, I want you to just stand behind them and just put your hand on them. Pray for them. Like, if there are other people in this room, I just want us to stand. Just, just pray the love of God over them right now. And put... Put our hands on people. Pray for them. Just pray. More love, Lord. More love right now. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your resurrection life in us. We pray that you would, um, that you would be merciful to all of us and that you would take us... Um, deeper into your grace, deeper into your heart. I pray that your love would be present and that you would be richly abundant in our hearts by faith. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this episode from Clearpath Church in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like more info to visit us on a Sunday morning or to subscribe to our newsletter, check us out at www.clearpathdallas.com. Follow us on Instagram at clearpathdallas. Thanks for listening.